Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. When you think about it, all work is about human beings. Every, every commercial enterprise that's ever existed or ever will exist is to serve human beings. And there are eight commercial needs of human beings, and there always have been and, and always will be. And human beings are the ultimate reality. And so companies are concepts. You know, teams are concepts. Business units are concepts. The only thing that's real are human beings. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. We are also joined by the illustrious Doug Kirkpatrick, the author of The No Limits Enterprise and many other books that are on the Brave New Work bookshelf. Doug, a very warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Aaron and Rodney. Great to be here with you. Awesome. On uh, today's episode, we're going to talk about self-managed leadership, among many other subtopics. But before we get into that, we have to check in. We do. We're going to check in. Yeah. I have a question. It's a real softball today (laughs) because I've had a very full morning. So as we always do, we will start with a check-in round question that each of us answer in turn. Let's go, Aaron, then Doug, then me. The softball of today is, what is your favorite thing about fall? Hmm. Well, first of all, my favorite thing is fall. Of course. So that, so that really, this is a softball. Yeah, it's wonderful. I like being reminded of the cycles of time and life. It's really nice to just be held in the idea that for everything there is a season, turn, turn. And when the leaves hit the ground, I feel less anxious about needing to live forever and more appreciative of the present moment. Nice. Doug, what about you? The main thing I love about fall are the colors and the smells Mm. and the sounds uh, and the fact that the days are getting shorter and cooler and more relaxing. And it's a segue into the holidays where we have more time to reconnect with friends and family and uh, slow down just a little bit and have slower, deeper, longer conversations about things that matter. That's what I like about fall. Nice. Nice. I like that fall feels like a bridge season in the best way where we move from like iced coffee to hot coffee and from t-shirts to sweaters (laughs) and from air conditioning to heat. I just like that it's this middle part and I always feel I'm a real summer person. At the end of the summer, I kind of get the blues and then fall happens and I'm so happy to have this reprieve from winter that is almost as awesome as summer. So mm. I'm really, I'm really enjoying it right now. The switch flip. Mm-hmm. All right. That was a good check-in. I like that. I feel just talking about fall makes me feel good, even though I'm inside in the podcast closet 
with absolutely no access to the outside. Doesn't matter. You know what it smells like out there. I can feel it in my Mm -hmm. heart. So today's topic is self-managed leadership. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, Doug, about something I saw in your bio, which is about the connection between love and work. So can you weave a yarn about love and work? I'll do my best. When we were starting our first tomato processing company back in the 1980s, our, our founder, Chris Rufer, brought his management team, of which I was a part, together. And we talked about work and the meaning of work. And, and his money question was, what does work have to do with love? And I remember just going around the circle and, and people were kind of stammering and stumbling. And, you know, I, I don't know what work has to do with love. And, and he didn't provide an answer, but <laughs> it, it, it caused us to start thinking about it. And when you think about it, all, all work is about human beings. Every, every commercial enterprise that's ever existed or ever will exist is to serve human beings. And there are eight commercial needs of human beings, and there always have been and, and always will be. And human beings are the ultimate reality. And so companies are concepts, teams are concepts, business units are concepts. The only thing that's real are human beings. Human (laughs) beings are the only, only entities that can take actions or make decisions. And so everything is about human beings. And and if you don't love human beings Mm. and you don't love serving human beings, then it's going to be a really long, lonely road in life and especially in work in life because it's all about serving your your fellow human beings so um best way to do that is is with a a big heart and a sense of of love and and nurturing care kindness compassion support empathy and all those good things about serving one's fellow human beings in life and work i love that Morningstar is certainly an organization that we look to for inspiration and reference frequently and is one of our favorite places to shock clients with practices that were incredibly successful. Just at a very essential level, I am curious how you all created an organization meant to serve the human beings rather than falling into the trap of having the human beings indentured to an organization that is not there to love them <laughs> or or care for them in any way. Like, how did that happen? <laughs> Thanks. That's my favorite question. So we started this food processing company in, in the 1980s, and it was a high-tech, high-volume food production facility. It was very successful. Mm-hmm. And we started it from scratch. Our founder, Chris Rufer, brought us together as a team. We we started this company and and it grew from zero to $100 million or so. And it was very successful. But we started noticing challenges in in the workforce and in in the way we organized and the way we managed because we just defaulted to the traditional command and control system Mm -hmm. that had always been around. And so... We noticed that when people came to work, realized that every single one of those individuals is a, a manager in his or her own personal life. 
So every one of those people is already making gigantic life-altering decisions mm-hmm. about their lives without a boss. They're deciding who to date and who to marry and where to go to college, what to do for a living, and whether to have kids or buy a house. And so it begs the question, if people know what to do at work and how to do it, why do they need bosses? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we just collected these insights. Then in, in 1990, Chris went off to found the Morningstar Company, and I followed him there, and I was serving as a financial controller. And we were working out of this little tiny farmhouse on a canal bank here in Northern California. And it was March of 1990, so just 30 years and seven months ago. And he came into the farmhouse and said, let's uh, get together and talk about governance mm-hmm. and how to organize. As one does. As, <laughs> yeah, as, yeah, just out of the blue, March of 1990. And we said, sure, there was a, a core team at that time, 24 of us. And so we met at night. We sat around in a circle, like an open space circle, facing each other in a, a construction trailer out on the job site. And he handed out his proposal for governance. And it was a three-page document titled The Morning Star Team Principles. Boiled down to two things. The, the two core principles were don't use force and keep commitments. Hmm. And we discussed and debated and had a dialogue for a couple hours. And we finally just looked at each other around the circle and said, we, we don't have any objections to these principles they're they're self-evident principles and so uh, we adopted them right on the spot and and in that moment became a self-managed enterprise (laughs) so we walked out of the trailer and and we had a lot of work to do this was march of 1990 so we had thousands of acres of tomatoes coming up out of the ground we had hundreds of contractors on the job site 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We had vital equipment out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean uh, on route from Parma, Italy. We had to hire hundreds of people to operate the factory and drive the trucks. And then finally on July 16th of that year, we turned on the factory and we made 90 million pounds of commercial industrial tomato concentrate for the world market. We changed the cost structure of our entire industry virtually overnight and we did it without any bosses no bosses no managers no vice presidents no titles and no (laughs) no command authority Mm -hmm. and uh, so people found that to be interesting and and perhaps unusual and and so we started having people call and wanting to come and visit and and learn more and and then in 2010 gary hamill came out and in 2011 his hbr article came out and i remember the story and so i found a career in evangelizing the benefits of organizing organizational self-management and there are companies all around the world that are figuring out that there are better ways to work than the way we've been doing it for 180 years well, and it's such a cool story, and I like getting the inside view like that inside the barn. I haven't haven't had that view before. But it does beg the obvious question that I'm sure you've answered and we all answer over and over and over, which is, if this is working 30 years ago, and it's on the cover of HBR nine years ago, why aren't we why aren't we seeing more of this in culture at a faster pace, right? what's your what's your take on that? 
Well, I think there are some constraints, and and one of the constraints is that people need to give up power, mm-hmm. and that's not an easy ask. Our entire society is organized around training business leaders in MBA schools to climb onto a career ladder and advance their careers and achieve perks and power and position and titles and advance, get promoted. So if that's the prevailing culture, then, you know, that's something to be overcome. And there's some neuroscience around the acquisition of power. So Mm. Ian Robertson wrote a book called The Winner Effect, How Power Affects Your Brain. And he (laughs) describes how people get a shot of dopamine when they exercise command authority. So that's why people become literally addicted to power. And so asking them to give that up is, is a bridge too far. Mm. Dr. Keltner out here at the University of California, Berkeley, a psychologist, uh, researcher, does a lot of work in, in power dynamics. And he finds that uh, there are definite power dynamics among leaders and teams, even to the point where Sometimes they observe etiquette and manners and courtesy degrade as a result of the exercise of power. So mm. there's some some interesting uh, dynamics at play here. And so we have to have a lot to overcome. So when you think about power structures in self-managing organizations, because they, they do tend to creep in even <laughs> once we have committed ourselves to no hierarchies and bosslessness, et cetera. Could you just talk a little bit about what you've seen and also what you've done to head it off when those less formalized power structures start to take hold? Well, it's interesting because at Morningstar, we really started from a perspective of principle. Mm-hmm. So I briefly mentioned the two core principles, don't use force and keep commitments. So if we take the first principle, it's a negative principle. It's what we want you to not do. And not using force is is an interesting principle because it means that there's zero command authority. Literally, no one has any authority to tell another person to stop doing X and start doing Y. No one has any unilateral authority to terminate the employment of another person. Everything is accomplished by request and response. And so this principle, we we think these two principles are the most fundamental principles of human interaction. They are to human beings what gravity is to physics. If you imagine a world where everyone abandoned the use of force, we wouldn't need armies or navies or police or locks on our doors. Mm -hmm. We know that's not reality. We understand that's not realistic, but that's not the point. The point is, the closer we can approach that ideal, the more space we open up for human happiness and harmony and teamwork and prosperity. So we start from a standpoint of principle, and that means that if someone attempts to form a, a, a power structure, or assert a superiority over another individual in in our networked organization, then it's illegitimate. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, a a person has a choice to make. They can 
call out the illegitimacy of the attempt. And they can ignore it or they can submit to it. Yeah, the, the fact of the matter is everyone has free will. And, and we, we know this because we chose to be here today instead of doing something else. And we could have chosen to do something else. So everyone has free will. And in our system at Morningstar, people are, are free to exercise that free will in, in ethical ways. And, and so if someone actually wants to form a mini hierarchy in this network, that's perfectly okay as long as it's voluntary. Mm-hmm. So it's the voluntariness of the arrangement that makes it either legitimate or illegitimate. So it's voluntary. If, if I just don't want to organize my own work day and I'd rather have someone else do it for me and they agree to do that, that's, that's perfectly okay. But it's not permanent. And it doesn't mean that they're my boss forever. It's, it's an arrangement that we have into which we have voluntarily entered. But if the illegitimate types of power structures arise, they're, they're illegitimate. And everyone is anyone, and everyone is free to call those out and address those directly. And we have processes in place which can resolve any conceivable difference between colleagues. So those, those illegitimate systems are, are vulnerable to being up, upended at any time. And often are, because people are human beings, and sometimes they try to assert themselves in ways that just aren't appropriate. Could you tell us a little bit more about those processes and how they worked or work? Sure. So, recognized early on that if we're going to create a self-managed enterprise where everyone has an equal voice in matters that affect them, that we're going to have to have a way to resolve differences. So the primary process is called gaining agreement. Mm -hmm. Simply is a structure that can be invoked by anyone at any time. If I see someone performing a task badly, I can ask them to change their method. Mm-hmm. and everyone has an obligation to respond to requests because everything's based on request and response. Mm-hmm. And so I ask them to change their method, and they disagree. Well, there's three options. They can disagree, they can agree, or we can ne- negotiate some third option. If they disagree and I still believe in my request, then I can escalate to a, a second step, which is to bring in a third-party mediator someone who understands the subject matter of their quest and who understands the process and their job is just off for their best advice. So I renew my request. The person agrees, disagrees, or we negotiate something else. If they disagree and I still believe in my request, I can escalate it to a third step, which is to bring in a group of mediators Mm. whose job is the same as the first mediator, just to offer their best advice based on the the respective stories. And at the end of that process, we still have the three same three possible options. The the person can disagree, agree, or negotiate something else. The person still disagrees with the request that I still (laughs) believe in, and we've agreed in advance by virtue of subscribing to these principles that we'll submit our difference and 
writing to an arbitrator who will render a final binding decision. Mm. So every conceivable difference, whether it's asking a fellow colleague to culminate his services to the company or asking a fellow colleague to change the weight of the copy machine paper, every conceivable Every conceivable request is addressed by the exact same process, starting with a re- direct request from one colleague to another. I love that. It's it makes it it makes a lot of sense. And one thing that I'm I'm learning in this conversation that is just cool to name is like in a lot of organizations that we work in and around, there's a real desire around the principal level and a lot of really good and smart thinking about more adaptive, more human principles to aspire to. And and then the practices and the experimentation with the practices is uh, really challenging. And we have views on practices to coach and teach that we think work pretty well. This is an area that I often find to be quite sticky as Mm. we move away from very explicit and structured power dynamics and shit goes wrong. What then? And so it feels to me like the commitment and request dance is so core culturally to the organization that you created that it is both the principle and the practice and you found the mechanisms to to connect them. Yeah, I think that's a fair description. And I haven't spent a lot of time talking about commitments, but commitments are, that is the affirmative principle. Commitment making and commitment keeping, those practices are sacred. They're, they're one of the two most foundational principles of human interaction. Don't use force. Uh, negative principle, keep commitments. Positive principles, what you should do. And we know from thinkers like Fernando Flores that commitment mm-hmm. keeping and commitment making, commitments have structure. They have a life cycle. They're based on specific types of language. And they are bold promises of intent. And it's not okay to blow off a commitment. Things come up, commitments need to be renegotiated uh, because they lead to expectations. They're the foundation of integrity, and that's the foundation of trust. I am curious. I mean, you you mentioned in that in that explanation that everybody has already agreed to this process before they engage in it. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to join the organization and how would I know what I'm committing to? How would I know just coming in before I've made any interpersonal commitments? What's the, what's the mechanism by which I know that I've, for example, agreed to that escalation process that you described? Right. So the, the acculturation and education process really begins in the hiring process and the hiring process is fairly rigorous. So many of the roles are technical roles. And in this environment, peers hire peers. So electricians hire electricians, uh, clerks hire clerks, uh, because no one's more invested in Mm. getting the right people on the bus than the people who will be working potentially side by side with those people for years to come. So these people are very interested in making sure that any prospective new hires fully understand the dynamics, the the principles, the infrastructure, the culture, they are very invested in getting that across. And so, for example, 
a group of technicians in interviewing a prospective technician might spend 10 or 15 minutes on technical competencies and spend two hours of an interview talking about self-management competencies and what it takes to Mm -hmm. thrive in this ecosystem. And that's been the pattern that I've observed over and over again. And it may take months, several group interviews spaced over a period of months to, to result in a, a final offer to a prospect. So by the time a, a person comes on board, they have already acquired just through the hiring process and interview process, a deep understanding of the culture and expectations and the importance of commitment making and, and what it means to not be able to use force. So they come on board, then we've got onboarding, we've got uh, deep orientation, we've got ongoing mini sessions, including role plays and, and scenarios and, and interactive games and all kinds of things. <laughs> so people understand you now have the keys to the car. You're a self-manager in a self-managed environment, and it's up to you to make things happen. And uh, you're an exerciser of free will. You choose what conversations to initiate, what things to tolerate, what things to not tolerate. And and here you go. You're a self-manager. So I am curious then, everyone's a self-manager, but I've heard you throw around this term of self-managed leadership. Where does leadership figure in to all this? What does that mean? And how is that different? Well, leadership is... uh, very interesting in a self-managed environment because because of the fact that command authority does not exist it means that leadership is exercised through trust and and respect and communication it's something that you earn so it's a concept of natural leadership Mm. and if, if you earn the respect of peers such that you can theorize a desired future state and invite people to join you on a journey to to that different future state, then that's natural leadership. And natural leadership, we believe, is stronger, better leadership. But we think that command authority causes leadership muscles to atrophy mm. and is weaker leadership. If I can just issue a command with the expectation that my command will be obeyed, that's actually not really leadership. That's just telling people what to do. So you can't do that in this environment. That's that's not okay. So to exercise leadership through request only is challenging. It can be very challenging, especially for people who have grown up in traditional organizations Uh, who are used to position power, who have expectations around their ability to tell people what to do. When they come to Morningstar, they find out that that no longer exists and people will not listen to them. They will not listen to commands. Uh, The culture rejects that leadership approach. And so natural leadership is the only thing that's allowed. And many people exercise it brilliantly. So we have technicians who theorize better processes. They talk to stakeholders who might be involved in a process improvement. They find capital budget for improvements. They implement things. 
and they end up saving potentially millions of dollars through their innovation and their natural leadership in the environments. Really quite fun to watch. And how have you seen natural leadership play along the lines of diversity, equity, and inclusion? I'm curious because of how most of us grow up and are socialized, not just in traditional organizations, but in the world, to look to certain types of people, even if they don't have command authority over us. And so I'm just curious how that's played out in your own organizations. Well, I, I, I would say that everyone has an equal voice. And that's really the, the cool thing about it. That's the starting point. And so we have a seasonal harvest operation. Mm-hmm. So it runs 24 hours a day from mid-July to early October. And then it shuts down. So we have had amazing return statistics of seasonal colleagues from one year to the next. I mean, we've had years where we've had a 100% return rate from one year to the next where they've been laid off for eight and a half months. Mm -hmm. And many of them uh, go home to Mexico in the wintertime. Uh, And yet they come back year after year after year. Why? Because they love the culture. They love the environment. They love to socially reunite with their friends who also work there. So for a factory to have a 100% return rate from one year to the next is, is almost unheard of in this industry. And I just did a focus group a few weeks ago with one of the Morningstar factories, and, and they were expressing absolute outright joy, their roles at Morningstar and being able to come back year after year after year and contribute their ideas, their voices are heard. They may be performing minimum wage jobs. Maybe they're just sorting tomatoes, but they organize their own schedules or self-managed just like everyone else in the factory. It's just quite, quite a remarkable thing. And there were some people that had been coming back every year for 30 years from the very beginning of the company, which just amazed me. I'm wondering, given, given all these successes and things that are working out, what still perplexes you or Morningstar? What's still challenging or interesting or nuanced in a way that it's kind of captured your attention and imagination? So the challenge, I would say this, this challenge has been with us from the beginning. I actually don't know if it's ever going to go away. And I'm sure you'll recognize this challenge, but we rely on a system of direct communication. So if you've got an issue or, or a problem with another colleague. Maybe it's a performance problem. Maybe it's an integrity issue. Maybe it's a trust issue. Who knows? Many people are reluctant to discuss things directly with their fellow colleagues. And so if you, if you aren't willing to do that in this environment, that means that you've chosen to tolerate whatever it is that's bothering you. Now, we do have an expectation of tolerance of non-critical personal quirks uh, and differences. So if someone is, for example, a Pittsburgh Steelers fan and I, I hate the Steelers, that's too bad. I need to tolerate their, their enthusiasm, right? So that's, that's expected. But if someone is operating a machine incorrectly 
and causing it to wear out prematurely, that's, that's something that I should be addressing. And if I choose not to address it and to tolerate it, then shame on me. Mm. I, I should be addressing it and I've chosen not to. And it's costing the company and it's hurting the company and it's uh, not helping my colleague because they're not performing correctly. So <clears throat> reluctance to directly address issues is the main conundrum. It's, it's been there since day one. It's a challenge. We do our best, but we have this kind of innate human reluctance to express courage and address things directly with one's fellow colleagues. And so it also goes to leadership. So we spent a lot of time at Morningstar talking about what Peter Kestenbaum invented, which is a leadership diamond model, which relies heavily on courage. Courage is the starting point of all leadership. It's the leadership attribute that makes all other attributes possible. And so the fuel for courage is anxiety. And anxiety is pure energy. It's either going to be released constructively or destructively. And so we try to teach people that you need to channel your anxiety about a situation into the courage to address it directly with your fellow colleague and have important, critical conversations, maybe difficult conversations, but we need to start at that point. We need to balance that with ethics, which is a concern for others. Courage is an internal, personal dynamic of will, but Ethics is about caring for others, compassion, empathy, nurturing, support. It's also based on principle, doing the right uh-huh. thing. And so balance courage and ethics. And what's the reality of the situation? Are they really performing that job incorrectly? Or is it simply an alternative method of performing the job that's perfectly uh-huh. legitimate? So make sure you understand the reality of the situation very carefully and then have a vision of where you want to take this conversation. What is the end result that you envision? And make sure that you're willing to pursue it to the ultimate conclusion that you want to see happen. So this natural leadership concept is is very important, and we need to amplify the courage message because that's really the starting point of these difficult conversations. Well, as a guy that wrote a book called Brave New Work, I think courage is a fantastic place to (laughs) draw things to a close and leave everybody with that challenge and that gauntlet laid down. So, Doug, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Where should we go online? Just go to LinkedIn. Easy enough. LinkedIn. My handle is redshifter3 on LinkedIn, or just Google me, Doug Kirkpatrick, LinkedIn, and that's the best starting point point there is. Awesome. Doug, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you very much, Aaron and Ronnie. Really enjoyed it. If you all like what you're hearing, a review would mean a lot to us as ever. Or if you can pass this show along to somebody who needs it, maybe to someone who needs some help making commitments, please do so. (laughs) It is a huge service to us and we greatly appreciate it. 
And as always, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin, who is committed to making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. We answer. We love to hear from you. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. 